A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to Silmarillion Stories, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for Of the Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor, the twelfth portion of the Silmarillion. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the sun and the moon, uh, the increasing defenses of the Valar, before answering some listener feedback questions. Definitely send us feedback. We save it all up between episodes. Send us an email at lotr at thelorehounds.com or visit our website where we have a contact form. We've got a voicemail feature. We're trying to push it lately. You send us a voicemail. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we also have a Discord server link in the show notes. And we have a fun and active community with a dedicated Tolkien channel and channels for all of the other shows we're covering. Stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes for the rest of January. We're going to be covering uh, a great new show on HBO Max called True Detective Night Country. We've got some Earthsea news and a bunch more. If you want to support us directly, head to patreon.com slash the lorehounds. Ad revenues are tricky in tracking, and Patreon is the best way to help us grow the podcast steadily for as little as three bucks a month. Subscribers get ad-free and early access to all of our podcasts. We've got special live watch events and other exclusive content just for subscribers. I actually, I'll, I'll do a shameless plug here. I just put out a new Shireside chat, which is where I talk about uh, the uh, the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, and I've pre-recorded another one, so they're coming out steadily now. There's, there's going to be a nice steady drip of Tolkien content for the patrons only. Nice. It was uh, fun to hear the theme song. I haven't heard that in a while. And to go along with that theme song, we have a special guest joining us for the top of the year, first of the uh, Tolkien podcast for 2024, Marilyn R. Pukila. Happy Hi, New folks. Year. Good to see you. Welcome Thank back. Thank you. Thank Have you. Happy you been? New Year to you both. Good holidays? Uh, busy. Yeah. The yeah. Ho- well, the holidays were uh, complicated by a huge wind and rainstorm which meant that my partner instead of being in his house and me in my house we were both together in my house for like 10 days mm. which never happened before so that was oh interesting new and exciting wow. and different and okay. uh, lots of learning opportunities which we welcomed <laughs> <laughs> but we were incredibly fortunate um i only lost electricity for 21 hours and i have an oh my gosh. generator um, that kicked in right away and kicked out when it wasn't needed. So 
you know, and, and I have fiber, so I never lost Wi-Fi. And, Very oh, nice. <laughs> you know, my, nice. My poor partner down there in the woods by China Lake, um, you know, Spectrum was just gone. <laughs> so <laughs> mm. it worked right. out very well, I think, for both of us. Very yeah. good. Very good. Well, I, I hope you both had a lovely life day. I know we did over here on the pod. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure Chewie we made did. it home. Chewie oh, made good. it home. So we're all okay. Oh, good. Now, if they can just get voice lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to try to imitate the Wookiee cries of Itchy and yeah. Uh, yeah. Lumpy. Lumpy. It's Lumpy. true. It's not It's not Chewie that's, that grates on my ears. It's Itchy and Lumpy. So yeah. they're the ones who need the, uh, the voice training. If you just come here for the Tolkien content and you're very confused, <laughs> we covered the Star Wars holiday special, which is a disaster of a movie, but a really fun podcast. It's not a movie. I keep telling you that. Fine. It's a disaster of a variety show. But anyway, it was amazingly bad, and the podcast was so fun. We did it with Stephen Anthony from Properly Howard. So check it out. Even if you don't watch Star Wars, I think there's a laugh to be had. Indeed. But here anyway. we're, we're here today to talk about the sun and the moon. Indeed, indeed. You know, I this ep- chapter doesn't stick out to me when I really? think of the Silmarillion. Hmm. And then I read it, and I'm like, this is a banger of a chapter. There's a yep. lot going on here. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really cool world building. There's a lot of, like, insane lore that never comes back. <laughs> that is, like, only <laughs> in this chapter. And uh, and some beautiful moments, too. So I, I was delighted to revisit this. It, again, like it's not one of the big ones you think of. It's not Baron and Luthien. It's not the fall of Gondolin, but it's a beautiful story and it's a really important to the world. And as a first time reader of the Silmarillion, I had very similar vibes reading this chapter. I was like, oh, this is what everybody is grooving on when they talk about the Silmarillion. Yeah. It's not just all the begats and the Melkor did this and, you know, or there's evil mm-hmm. lurking, lurking in the forest. This felt to me like the juice that I've been waiting for from the Silmarillion. It's yeah. Tolkien really at his best. The language is poetic. The characters are interesting. The 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 stakes, you know, the this this um, turning disaster into something new and rolling it over. It was uh, it was very cool. Like it wasn't action packed, you know, you know, in 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 other ways, but it was just very like Oh, yeah. There was literally a battle with the moon, David. What what more do you want? (laughs) But he just waves it away. He just says nothing. It's like half a sentence and it's it's done. Um, It's classically mythological. Yes. Totally. Totally. It's very Greek. Felt very Greek. Yes. 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 Definitely Greek. And um, if you have already read the other parts of Legendarium and you come to this, you know, you can really resonate when you hear some names that are mentioned just in passing quickly sure, mm-hmm. and say, wow, I am here at the birth of, you know, the Kalakirka. You know, mm-hmm. how, how cool is that? <laughs> right. right. It's a super good chapter. Marilyn, I'm sure you've read this chapter even many more times than I have. What, what's your impression on this revisit? Uh, how very Greek it was, as you were saying, interestingly enough. Um, but also just this reminder that so many people say, how come the Valar just sit around on their thrones and do nothing? Mm. And they absolutely don't. Right. They do all kinds of things. And sometimes what they do is they're sitting in thought. But that's mm-hmm. not, you know, 
that's not just wigging out, you know, it's not just taking <laughs> five. They are actively working on their proper job, which is the tending of the physical creation of the world. And suddenly they have these, these creatures to deal with who are created as they are created beings, but they're not made of stone and water and fire. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're mm -hmm. beings with, with their own ideas and feelings and thoughts and intentions. Um, and there's just some wonderful, wonderful lines in here that mm -hmm. show the compassion of the Valar and the grief of the Valar. Yeah. And the thought that they do take for these beings who they have no idea about what they're like. They just have these sort of hints. They were not given a parenting manual when they became <laughs> exactly no. the Valar no. of, of uh, mm -hmm. Arda. No, nor even informed of all of the specific plans. I mean, what only Manway has a vague sense of of something. That's right. That's right. But otherwise, they're yeah, they're they're in the dark about a lot of the 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 rest of the musical score, as it as it were. It perfectly put because that's exactly what it was. They're reading was. the sheet music as for the first time, right? As they're right. they're going along, right? And in yeah. a lot of cases, there isn't any sheet music. And oh, by the way, the strongest among them tore up the sheet music <laughs> and has been point. creating havoc and chaos ever since. So none, nobody can predict or determine right. what's going right. to happen next. And I believe it was an earlier chapter where it was explicitly said, you know, the Valar might know the, the whole of creation, except for the children of Iluvatar when they're in the ether with Eru Iluvatar, once they're, right. once they're one with him. But uh, once they go into creation, they lose most of that knowledge. Right. They can well, only remember bits and pieces of it. And it's a mess, you know? Yeah. It's not the finally <laughs> beautiful thing that they were experiencing. No, the it's strongest among them went rampaging through the, the orchestra and is now right. running around the right. uh, the auditorium, just throwing his seats <laughs> around and smashing the, the chandeliers and, you know. I, I picture him as Ron Burgundy in Anchorman playing the jazz flute solo and dancing on the tables and, and kicking all the glasses down. That's what Melkor is. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, by the comparison. way, there are eight separate texts that Tolkien wrote throughout the course of his life, starting in 1917, that have material about this one chapter. Wow. Yes. Hmm. So... Tolkien was basically writing and rewriting this throughout his life. And then Christopher comes along and gives it one more rewrite. Um, uh, and, and yeah, the, if I remember right correctly as well, the publication history of the Silmarillion is, is it's credited to Christopher. Yes. And it didn't come out. What was the publication date? It was something like 1977. Crazy. And Guy Gabriel K also helped him. Yes, it. he okay. did. Yes, he did. Yeah. And really gets credit. So a, a, an amazing job of being able to pull all those sources together and, and have something, I mean, for the whole book yes. to create a coherence and a, and a narrative structure. It's very biblical in a way, isn't it? The, Unquestionably. The Any way kind of that, text. Yeah. All this stuff came together and then like, mm -hmm. there has mm -hmm. to be some uh, interpretive functionary, to, but it's not just a functionary. There's an artistry to it and there's a, yes. Uh, a crafting to it. It's like taking all of this material and having to forge it into something mm -hmm. new that's recognizable, but yet has 
an internal strength and a narrative structure that we can actually relate to. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Tolkien had a more or less finished text for the Silmarillion mm-hmm. at one okay. point, but once he realized that he was going to have to backwrite to make it cohere with the Lord of the Rings, which is what everybody knew, he suddenly found himself faced with a whole lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. And some of them he never did solve, and Christopher didn't either. You know, the whole, what is the story of Galadriel? Mm. Exactly. We don't know. I was going to bring it up, yep. Yep. We don't know. I feel like she would have done really well in this chapter. You know, uh, this this would have been uh, somewhere to, you know, the light spreading to the world. I think that would have been a cool way to incorporate yeah. get Galadriel. But I think yeah. if Tolkien would have lived 10 more years, he would have incorporated Galadriel into a lot of He would of have stories. tried to. Yeah. But at that stage in his life, it was really hard. It was mm-hmm. hard work. He was tired. The thing that really grieves me the most is by the 1950s, he was convinced that he'd made a mistake and that the elves should have enough knowledge to know that the sun and the moon were created at the same time as the earth. Mm. And of course it wasn't a flat earth. It was a round earth. They would know that. Mm. And so these must be human versions of the stories. And that's where all the error crept in kind of thing. But the idea that he was going to change the beautiful mythology of the two trees and say, actually the sun and the moon existed when the earth was made. And so the light of the Silmarils is actually the light of the sun and the moon. And this story about trees and whatever is, is just an interpolation by human. Don't do it. No. Yeah. It's a little bit of a Catholic problem too, right? I don't know that it was John. It was a scientific problem. He really was more and more interested in making the world that he created as coherent to the actual world as possible. And that began to stray into the areas of science and astrology and astronomy. I was going to say that, that the, I'm glad it's not our world. I'm glad that when the sun and the moon go down underneath the land, there's just some sort of weird Swiss cheese thing that happens and they get to the <laughs> other side and they pop up on the other side. Right. Because for me, we have plenty of story. Uh, of that that mimic a um, and model the universe as we know it with you mm-hmm. know uh, uh, sus planets going orbiting suns and the like mm-hmm. and to have a rich text and history and world that is something utterly different and doesn't have explanation yeah. I like that and I really appreciate that uh, and I don't know how many other Maybe in fantasy we have a bit more than in science fiction, but I mean, you know, I I haven't read the Pratchett stuff, but Discworld certainly seems to be a, a, a departure from having a Earth circling, you know, a planet circling the sun. Absolutely. But even then, he's taking uh, uh, mythological ideas that are already in existence, right? With the right. elephants and the discs, the elephants and 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 the, the, and the, the turtle, and, and yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. Tolkien's world is wholly created. From, from, you know, I don't know what all the influences that would have been him, that would have helped him uh, develop this world. But when you, when I think, when I think about how early he was writing this relative to the amount of fiction of of literature that he would have been able to draw on or other stories that he could have drawn on, Mm -hmm. it's, 
it, it, I think it stands unique in some ways. And there's a, it gives me a greater appreciation for the world that building that he did was yeah. that he was, he didn't fall into the easy pathway of just recreating our world, the, the, the mechanics of our world as we understood them at the time. And right. I think it, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a rich, it creates a richer and greater context for the, the work. Well, just think of the richness of this image of the two trees. I mean, what's John love to say, you know, follow the trees. Follow the trees, mm -hmm. yeah. And the idea that they're no longer this potent symbol of the source of sacred light, that they're still like almost a second best in a way. The sun and the moon are supposed to be the second best to the two trees. There was right. light before them that got right. destroyed. But this was supposed to be the primeval light. And, you know, that is woven all the way through the story of Valinor, the story of Numenor and Isildur saving one of the uh, saplings mm -hmm. of the white tree and Gondor and its white tree. I mean, it just, it's such an important thread. And to think that he was thinking of snapping it. Right. That would have been. Um, yep. It just, it. It's sort of a reflection of, of his own second guessing towards the end of his life, which is why I, I find it very grievous. I One other thought just occurs to me, too. I, I was trying to think of other mythological stories of how the how creation was created and how the the land that people walked on was created and how the mm -hmm. people themselves were created. And we go to all of the rich cultures that we have in Earth's history and everybody's got a pretty, you know, a, a well set and defined. This is how creation occurred, and this is how people occurred. Boom! It's locked in. That's it. Tolkien's world destroys, you know, part of of the the fundamental creation of the uh, of of the of the land is destroyed, and they got to start all over again, and then they got to start all over again. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, I, I don't know of any other mythologies that have that where something bad happens and then, oh, we got to fix it. Oh, we got to fix it again. Um, that's unique. That, that seems to be a, a unique uh, construction. The closest I can come is, um, of course, Ragnarok mm -hmm. uh, from the Norse mythology. But, and there is one reconstruction, as you were saying. But I think it's only one. Right. It's sort of this is how the world became as it was today. And I think there is something of a semblance there with Tolkien's process in Middle Earth. Sure. Because when, you know, the void was opened in the sea and Numenor tipped in, that's when we went from a flat world to a round world. And this mm -hmm. is his original conception of why humans talked so long about a flat world. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just simply they looked around and that's what they saw, but there was, you know, once it really truly was flat and then it became round. Right. <laughs> right. In reality, in their reality. Through, right. Exactly. Yeah. Materially. Yeah. Um, well, the good news is unlike Feanor, these texts were not marred. And <laughs> we can now enjoy we can dig them, into them for what we have. So let's get started on this plot. Uh, I've synopsized this in uh, in bite-sized chunks. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, in, in keeping with the purpose of this podcast, you know, we're trying not to go line by line. We're trying to give a broad overview of what's going on. I've omitted some of the names of like 
different people who do different things unless it's really important to the story. So anytime that he's like, and these were three Elvish words for the sun. I'm like, no, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Uh, so I've tried to simplify it here. Uh, let's just start off with the two trees have been killed by Morgoth and Ungoliant and the Valar grieve both the trees and the actions of Feanor. I, I love this quote. Uh, they mourn not more for the death of the trees than for the marring of Feanor. And you know what? I've just decided to read a lot more. For Feanor was made the mightiest in all parts of body and mind. In Valor, in endurance, in beauty, in understanding, in skill, in strength, and in subtlety alike. Of all the children of Iluvatar, and a bright flame was in him. The works of wonder for the glory of Arda that he might otherwise have wrought only Manway might in some measure conceive. And it was told by the Vanyar who held vigil with the Valar that when the messengers declared to Manway the answers of Feanor to his heralds, Manway wept and bowed his head. What a, what a heartbreaking quote, right? Yeah, yeah. Only Manway will ever know how great Feanor could have been. It's like a disappointed parent. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And... You know, thus far, we really have only seen Manue as as judge. Mm -hmm. And we've heard a lot about the, you know, the, the, the wrath of the Valar for what the Noldor have done and, you know, the resulting consequences of that, which I think is fair to say really rest from their actions. It's not as though Manue said, right this is going to happen to you because of what you did. I mean, it's, it's more said, and I'm not imposing it on you. It's just coming from your own actions. And, uh, you know, that incredibly painful fact of free will. Yeah. And they were hurt. The Valar were hurt that it, it would have been believed by the elves that they were being held captive there. Yeah. That they were using them in some fashion, that they were holding them back so that humans could come and usurp them. I mean, all of the lies that Melkor told, you know, the Valar in some respects were bewildered and and upset. And, you know, how can, what, how can you think this? This isn't who we are. Right. You know, Feanor is such an interesting character in the Silmarillion and, I think perhaps symbolizes the elves as a whole, right? And symbolizes the world as hmm. a whole. It symbolizes even the potential of Melkor, right? Because the only one who can yeah. release the potential of Melkor is perhaps Manway. Maybe maybe even perhaps only Eru Iluvatar, because mm -hmm. Manway is mm -hmm. limited by his own being. But it's all of these people make these choices, all these beings make these choices that prevent them from achieving beauty achieving their full potential and it's very sad it's very sad and i think that's a reflection of how tolkien saw this this earth this world mm -hmm. and the human beings in it it reminds me of how he spoke about Gollum in the lord of the rings nice. where he says you know Gollum did not have you, you know the ring would have fallen right spibimi we need to we you know that that's what needed to happen but the difference is Gollum had the choice whether to save his own soul or not. His mm -hmm. actions, his intent in that moment were what affected his own soul. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, he made the wrong choice. He tried to take the ring for himself. And so his soul was not saved in whatever, however that works in Tolkien's world. But (laughs) you know what I mean? But I I think that, you know, Gollum still did a good thing, but he used his free will to darken his heart, I would say, to harden his heart. If I if we're going to go biblical Mm. with it. Sure, sure. And I mean, to some degree with Gollum, you do have to bring in the effect of the ring upon him. Sure. Not entirely him, but the murder of Diagol definitely was his choice, even though they started that way. The call of the ring was very potent because it was so beautiful. Yeah. In his eyes. What I find fascinating is it wasn't until the, the sixth version or rewrite of these stories that Feanor even appears. Really? In this, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He seems so central. Looking at from this end, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. only because he is central, you know. Right. He's, he started it all. And so many readers and, and, and people who talk about this um, really point to him and blame him and say, you know, if only he had done this or hadn't done that or whatever. Um. But if it hadn't been Fanor, I think it would have been somebody else because mm-hmm. because Melkor. Right. Right. And sometimes I think, again, this is one of Tolkien's themes that the, those who are in their heart and soul creators are the most vulnerable to overstepping, to aggrandizement, mm. to possessiveness, to all of these things, which are definitely poor choices. Yeah. In Tolkien's eyes. Yeah. I like that. Um, we do, of course, get our favorite acronym from the Prancing Pony podcast. I'll, I'll attribute <laughs> it to them. Uh, Spibimi uh-huh. uh, shall prove but by an instrument. And if, you, if you've if you forgotten what this means, because I guess we haven't talked about it in a while, this is a quote from Eru Lubitar back in the day in the very first chapter of the Silmarillion. He mm-hmm. says, you know, all, all that you do will pr- shall prove but by an instrument, meaning anything you do that's evil will eventually work to the greater good. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we get that pretty explicitly here. It's a pretty explicit statement. Thus, even as Eru spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into Ea, and evil yet be good to have been. But Mando said, and yet remain evil. And I think that kind of goes back to what we're talking about with Gollum and Feanor, which is, yes, this in the main plot of the world, in the main history of the world, may turn to good. But Feanor's art, heart has been hardened. Feanor has been turned toward evil. And as a consequence, many, 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 many people will suffer and die. Right. right. And I think that's the part that Mandos is, is focusing upon. And you have to ask, you know, is are these incredible songs and tales worth the price right and i think tolkien was thinking of all of the friends that he lost in the first world war Mm -hmm. and was their sacrifice worth it because 20 years later they were plunged into another world war right after being promised that the first one would be the war to end all wars the great war the great you know it was even called that and it's it just Mm -hmm. feels very Mm -hmm. like romanticizing violence well, and I think he, that was one of the, the very fine lines that he trod, particularly in Lord of the Rings, where you hear 
about the charge of the Rohirrim and they were singing as they slew. Now, of course, because it's mostly orcs, that's supposed to be not quite as bad, but how do you look at that and say that Tolkien didn't glorify violence? You know, it's kind of tough, yeah. Yeah. but he was drawing from these different cultures that he had yeah. studied all of his life and dearly loved. And I think trying to foreground valor, courage, bravery, more than, you know, the joys of killing or whatever you want to call that. Um, and trying to show that there would could be some other possible positive outcome from that. And we get the beautiful lament uh, at the end of that chapter um, from one of the Rohirrim describing the Battle of the Belenor Field and, and how this person fell and that person fell. And the last line is, red fell the dew in Ramas Achor. Mm. It's, you know, it's beautifully, beautifully put. And it's a terrible slaughter. So right. how do you how do you live with that dichotomy? And that's where this, you got to have a certain amount of faith and trust. And you've got to have a certain amount of cognitive dissonance. I mean, we thrive on <laughs> cognitive dissonance as, as a species. And we do don't we? like to admit it. Interesting. But I think that we, we all live with, you know, let's protect the environment, but also I got to drive to work, right? You know, there's all sure. these all these cognitive dissonances that we have to live with. Oh, look at the average uh, social media feed of, you know, when you're scrolling through, you mm. know, uh, uh, fitness influencers and um, uh, FOMO, oh, you should travel here. And then mm -hmm. current daily news headlines from around the world. Like right. that's a lot of cognitive dissonance happening mm -hmm. on a yeah. micro scale every day for, you know, vast, vast numbers of us on social, you know, who use social yeah. media. So speaking of the Rohirrim, just a quick plug. The movie is scheduled. Lord of the Rings, the War of the Rohirrim uh, animated movie is set for release uh, on December 13th of this year. So yay, that will be an interesting. There you go. See, there's some cognitive dissonance, right? Like, oh, yeah, we get to see the Rohirrim. We get to see a war. Yeah, right. <laughs> slaughter in animation. Right. But we'll definitely be covering that movie when uh, when it comes. Absolutely. So, yeah. Do you know that they actually got the uh, actress from the Peter Jackson movies who played Eowyn yeah. to narrate it? Yes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yes. She's yes. great. I love her. Yes. Yeah. Which is and excellent. Yeah. I'm ashamed that I'm blanking on her name, but it will come to me at an end. We're very sorry, Eowyn. Sure. <laughs> We're very sorry. Please don't send your troops at us. David, you've been quiet in general, and, and I want to get your take on this, this whole thing. Um, does Feanor feel like a fleshed out character to you because i feel like marilyn and i are gushing about this development and uh for me i'll i'll say it took a long time for me to see a lot of these characters as full beings because they're talked about so much in passing so what did this part how did it ring to you i don't know that I got so hung into uh, individual characters like Feanor in this. I, I think I'm still in the wash of the my first reading. And so just having that orientation and the, that, okay, this person is getting mentioned here. And then there's that name, which I'm, I'm probably never, ever going to see again because I've never heard of them. You know, <laughs> so there's there's just lots of details. So for me, I don't think it's registering at that level yet. I'm, I'm still just sort of in the 
shock and awe of, of reading the Silmarillion for the first yeah. time. So Marilyn, do you want to do your defense of the Valar right now? Because I, I can make a case against Manway again. Well, I, I kind of started it right at the very beginning there. Um, when you asked me what this chapter meant to me. Um, so I don't know that I have that much more to add, but I think part of it is we, we can think that we know the mind of Manway or whatever name you have for, for divinity and judge their actions or seeming inactions on the basis of your own personal experience and forget that that is a limited experience. Mm-hmm. And so here we actually have the story told from the perspective of the Valar, which is not our perspective and it's not the L's perspective, but it's real and it's valid. And it does affirm that yes, the Valar are compassionate. The Valar care very much for the children of Luvatar. That's the whole point why they limited themselves bound themselves to this world and are stuck there until this world ends, even as the elves are. So they may have a lot more compassion than, than the elves think. Right. Um, but it's, again, it's the awesome in the literal sense of the word gift of free will that's happening here. And talk about cognitive dissonance you know, the, the tendency to say, I can do whatever I want, but, oh, don't let that happen. No, that's wrong. That's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the actions good of Good for me, not for thee, all that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And even not good for me, you know. Yeah. Just yeah. because I want to do something doesn't mean it's a good idea to do it. Right. Yeah, I, I don't really need to finish that bag of chips, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> right, right. Because I can. Because I can. Yeah. It's my yeah. right as a Feanorian. <laughs> well, I, and I'm thinking now of the the third of the three Doctor Who episodes that came out last yeah, month with the, the giggle. giggler, the giggle, and uh, they really kind of danced on that theme a lot. They did. Of, they know, did. I'm I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. I mean, pushed to you know, in some respects, a ridiculous extreme. But on the other hand, you know, how how very far off are we from it, really? So mm-hmm. here's Manoe, who has a fairly good notion of everything that's going on, but not everything because he's not Eru. He's got right. a good connection with Eru, but even Manoe has to have free will. Even Manoe can't be the puppet, as it were, because then he doesn't have it anymore. And that's that's got to be the hardest thing of all, whether you're Eru or Manwe or a human parent or an elvish parent for that matter. Hmm. So the fact that, yes, they're doing lots of things. And in the first version of this, the book of lost tales, they were doing a lot of really comic things, <laughs> <You know, laughs> falling all over themselves. And Aule was dropping the fruit and Tulkus was tripping over it. And I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's so much more Greek, right? It's a lot of slapstick almost yeah. in a way. Um, so it really grew a lot over the course of the eight different versions that, that he brought in. And, you know, we see, well, we haven't come to that point yet, so I'll save that for the next section. Um, but I, yeah. I did have one technical, well, not a technical question, clarification question, right in the first sentence of this chapter, uh, 
the ring of doom is mentioned. It's told that after the flight of Melkor, the Valar, the Valar sat long unmoved upon their thrones in the ring of doom. And I was like, rings, doom. Uh, that was what, what's the reference here? Why, well, why I, I think it- it's been mentioned before in the chapters, but perhaps again, there's a lot of terms. You just gotta, yeah. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Marilyn, but this is Manway's domain in here, the ring of doom. Um, well- it's very much. Sorry, not man. Wait, I'm sorry. Mandos, I meant to say. Um, hmm, interesting. I consider Mandos to be the pronouncer of sentences, but Manoe is the judge. Mm-hmm. Right. So, in this, I think it's more Manoes than than Mandos's. I mean, Mandos seems to have a pretty good grasp on the future because he's the one who, after the Valar, in their non-wisdom but nonetheless their compassion said well we better bring the elves over here where they'll be safe from the machinations of melkor and mandos is the one who says so it is doomed because of that break of free will you know how do you say no to a demiurge when they say hey you should really come over here some of the elves do actually so so then the physically the ring of doom is is mm -hmm. mandos's this is this sort of fateful thing is the ring of doom like where they sit council is that another well, name for where they sit court? council doom court? is doom is not exactly the word that we think of doom right. is it's just the, the pronouncement of what will happen right it's not you are doomed to such and such but no the doom you know, of man doom. this is yeah. this is the the doom that i will pronounce the halls of mandos is what i'm thinking of i was like why am i why am <laughs> i this? i'm conflating okay. two okay. things so thank yeah, you for I the think correction you are. Yeah, i think you are yeah but I relate it to um, the Icelandic uh, thing. It's literally called Thing. It is a meeting of all of the peoples come together once a year or however often it was to this place called Thingvellir, which means the place where the thing is held. It's an assembly okay, where people come and they talk about whatever is challenging to them and they consult their law and they reach their decisions. And Got it's on it. an incredible location where the two tectonic plates of Europe and North America meet. So geologically, it's just astonishing. Perfect, yeah. And I think that's what this is. All right, Marilyn has corrected me, so don't at me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Don't at me either. I mean, my correction doesn't necessarily be all and end all. Good question, though, David, because I I learned something there. Um, Well, yeah, and as a a first-time reader and and thinking of other first-time readers, yeah, it's helpful to, like – He's throwing out all the time names and places and little things, and it's which ones are significant and which ones can you let go. And it just because Lord of the Rings has so much to do with the ring and doom and Mount Doom and the doom of man, mm-hmm. you're like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? But it's really important to remember that when Tolkien uses the word doom, correct, he almost inevitably means just simply fate, right? Exactly, which can be positive and negative. Right. And we're just really hooked on this idea of, oh, I'm doomed. Right. It's the, the word is, has turned its course. Yes. Yeah, I mean, definitely. it had turned its course by then, but he was just stubborn about it. Anyway. <laughs> he, he was drawing on his sources. He was drawing on his sources. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on since we've only gotten to the first bullet point and we're at about 40 minutes. <laughs> let's do one more bullet point and then we will uh, we'll head to a break. But for now, the Valar try to bring life back to the trees. And the tears of Nienna caused the trees to each sprout one more time. Telperion bears a silver flower, and Laurelin 
bears a golden fruit. Yavana, Aule, and Manwe worked together to forge the flower and fruit into vessels that would become the moon and sun. Varda sets them in the sky to light the world. And I, I see that Marilyn's already responded to this, but I, I still want to point out <laughs> this is the first time that they lit Middle Earth for the elves. Before that, it was just Ammon Twite. that was lit. They they were just like, yeah, you guys will be fine with the stars. That'll be fine. Yes, this is true. You're absolutely right. The tree is only shown in the Blessed Realm. The case and... against Manway strengthens. <laughs> ah, but Varda softens it because... She was the one who made the bright stars specifically for the coming of the elves once they realized that Melkor was messing with Middle-earth and that the elves were due to arrive shortly or wake up shortly. She made the bright stars specifically. There are already stars in the sky, but she manufactured these really bright stars, although Tolkien would hate the word manufacture, wouldn't he? But she made the metal karma, excuse me, she made metal makar, who we know today as Orion, and she made the Balakirka, which is called the Sickle in the UK and the Big Dipper in the United States. So it's not like they were in, in you know, a closet. And they then the light. elves learned what pupil contraction was when, <laughs> when the sun went up. They were like, the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the moon came first, so they had time to have their eyes adjust. True, true. That's but true. that's right. also why they are called the Eldar doesn't mean they're the older it means they are the people of the stars Mm -hmm. l being the word for star so it's very tied up in the 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 character and the culture and the ethos of elves when you think of elves you think of them wandering by starlight you don't think again dancing on the lawn and you know in the sunlight right right because they are liminal people they Mm -hmm. occupy the space between utter dark and strong light so the starlight is what's appropriate to them. Right. I'm glad that you're here on this episode, Marilyn, because I was going to have to name drop you anyway with Nienna coming here to save uh, the day. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, <laughs> I love. I do love that the Valar are like, yeah, Nienna, I, I see you're crying. Can you do it right over here? Right <laughs> on top of the tree? Somebody just takes her by the hand and sort of gently leads her over there. <laughs> But it was Yvonne and Yenna. I thought that was I that was like yes. instantly like, oh, good thing Marilyn's with us today when I read that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was also Yvonne and Nienna who brought the trees to life in the first place. Right. Yeah. Right. So. I love the the uh sort of a team action that they've got going on here. You know, everybody's got their part, everybody, you know, who's their specialty comes together. It really yeah, it, the the whole thing just works really well, and it it's, goes to what I was enjoying about this chapter was to see these, uh, I guess it, almost like orchestral movements, right? Okay, here come the woodwinds, yes. and then here come the horns, and then up come the drums. All the different uh, parts are coming together to achieve something and and fix something that they didn't expect that that they had to fix to, to correct a situation that they, you know, taking a really terrible situation, Mm -hmm. a complete utter heartbreak Mm -hmm. for losing the trees and then having, you know, Feanor, um, you know, and the Silmaril and all that to like be able to then come up with something pretty cool uh, with the sun and the moon as these, you know, mechanical operations 
yeah, I don't know. I was really, I, I was really taken with the, the whole concept of it. And then the whole way that he has them all come together to, to do the different bits of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's an example of, I think, Eru's vision and intention. Right. Is all of these different voices and different interests working together. Because when they don't, such as when Aule created the dwarves, um, tension arises and, you know, conflict down the line and so forth. Creating an isolation is for Tolkien a dangerous thing. And I think he would have argued that he himself did not create an isolation because he was constantly sharing these stories with his friends, with the Inklings, with former teachers. So there was that sense of community going yeah. on too. Interesting. And then subsequently, of course, Christopher, right. you know, um, he shared so much with Christopher before his death and knew that he alone could not bring this final um, volume to completion for a number of reasons. So if the trees are never smote, smitten, anyway, uh, destroyed <laughs> by by Melkor, Mm-hmm. Do the Valar ever take it upon themselves to light Middle-earth beyond stars? It's an interesting question. Because the men, they need they need vitamin D. I mean, the elves are one thing, <laughs> but uh, they don't sell Sunny D in Middle-earth. So Theoden's going to be looking like he did under Saruman if he's not having a son. <laughs> so what? I, I, but jokes aside, this is a real question, like, Mm-hmm. I, this is why I say, you know, I know you're going to push back and say, you know, the Valar are doing things, but like, I do think that they get a little bit complacent when things are good. And sometimes struggling with Melkor is what makes them, you know, find themselves forced into action. Yeah. And they get, I'm not sure that I would use the word complacent, but they do become inactive. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily when things are good, but when they are afraid that their own actions might bring about greater harm Mm -hmm. which the last time they decided okay we got to jug melkor you know the continent was reshaped and they put a protection around the elves who had woken up by then and for whom they were doing this action against melkor so that they would not be terrified by watching you know Mm -hmm. seas rise up and mountains be knocked down and so forth they're they're working with so much lack of information, they really there's so much they don't know, which has got to be tough when you're supposed to be a demiurge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they do what they can, not too dissimilar from humans. They don't know what humans are going to be like. They don't know that they necessarily need vitamin D. You know, they don't know how they will differ from the elves and having made what they view as a terrible mistake with the elves they say look we don't know what we don't know so it's hands off humans yeah and they'll just have to do the best they can i think i would question their decision in not going after melkor sooner Mm -hmm. you know i mean that's what tolkis was all about and i think maybe they didn't appreciate that even Tolkien's simple story and simple song had a purpose. Right. Let me at him, bro. That's that's all yeah. he wanted. Right. Um, but really, I mean, it's it's true. I I think that certainly a lot of suffering would have been prevented if the Valar had man weighed up and 
gotten Melkor mm-hmm. earlier. And we would not have all the songs that we have. We might not have um, the Golden House of Finarvin and mm-hmm. uh, um, and Tom Bombadil's got to sing something. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it. You know, the second guessing is is one of our favorite games as humans. I think, and probably doesn't serve us a whole lot. Right. I said one more plot point, but this is so intertwined that I'm just going to add this one in, which is notably the Valar also set two of what appear to be Maiar to steer the sun and moon, a gardener for the sun and a hunter for the moon. I loved that, John. That was that was such a good catch. It's it's cool stuff. And I I love uh, there was a detail that, you know, nobody could even look into the eyes of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a spirit of fire, a spirit of fire, not deceived by Melkor. And I think we've had this conversation before. I think, David, you asked me this in the second age days. Like if if all of Melkor's servants are spirits of fire, were there any spirits of fire who weren't Melkor servants? And here we go. Yeah, this is explicitly Mm -hmm. the sun is a spirit of fire who defied Melkor. Right. Arian the maiden was mightier than he, and she was chosen because she had not feared the hearts of Laurelin and was unhurt by them. Being from the beginning a spirit of fire whom Melkor had not deceived nor drawn into his service. Yeah, I, I was really taken by this description and by this character. I was like, wait, wait, did, yeah, did yeah. she come back? Did we get more You're never going to see her again. <laughs> never, ever again when you see her. She's up there in the sun. Come on. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you'll, yeah, you'll see her all the time. <laughs> Every day when it's not cloudy. I'm just going to say, just sit for a moment and contemplate the fact that one Maiar could defeat Melkor now. Mm. And how much that says about how much Melkor has already fallen. Mm-hmm. Mm. We're going to get to that in the next section. So I want to save that for a minute. Right. Um, right. You had something, I, Marilyn, about the sound of waterfalls. Oh, we, before that, really quick, I just wanted to jump over uh, back, Marilyn, in, in contemplating these characters too. Mm-hmm. When we talked about the 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 very Greekness of this as well, but it, it also made me think of the ending of Loki, and I won't of uh, season two of of Loki yes. on Marvel. That there's only certain things that gods can do yes. in terms of time, eternity, the the repetition of a particular task. Uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a human being would go crazy being mm-hmm. in charge of one thing forever. And so then to be able to take these, uh, these powerful beings that transcend our mortal conception to, to then be set into place, um, to, to not mechanically turn the wheels, but to live, to be a living element that is present and intentional in their task every day for the rest of millennia for the rest Mm -hmm. of the millennia Mm -hmm. you know forever is is really exceptional and it 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 touched uh that nerve and a lot of times we talk on our podcasts about you know we sort of mix we're looking across all these different shows and stuff yes and i I instantly thought of loki at the end of season two uh and and what happens for him uh, and the choice that he makes. And if you that haven't is, seen it, definitely go watch season two. It's because it's great. Absolutely. And and yeah, that is really, really cool connection. And there is another character who is only alluded to, who is not a Maiar or a Valar, mm-hmm. who does exactly the same thing mm. at the end. At yeah. the end of? Of, 
of the the Silmarillion. Okay. All right. All right. And is wait now I got to read the whole book. And is responsible <laughs> for for the redemption. Basically. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So again, not unlike Loki. Loki at the end of season two. Ooh, I just <laughs> I never chills. made that connection before. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Can't wait uh, till you get there, David. Yeah, exactly. You may start reading ahead. You know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, there are spoilers about it in this chapter. Yes, there okay. are. Tolkien right, and, loves him a little dip in here and there, like right. the Silmarils and they are lost. And I mean, like I mean, I skipped over it, but there's literally a line in a passage that I was just reading mm-hmm. where he's like, "Yeah, Fandor's going to die soon." Mando's like, "Where he's going to see me?" Yes, soon. Yeah. yes. So, yeah. like, there's tons of spoilers in the text. He's yeah. just and he's just telling you what's going to happen. Well, John, it's more about the journey, right? You've mentioned yeah. on, on several occasions that. You know, you when you keep rereading the Silmarillion, you keep getting, you keep picking up on these different takes and angles. Yeah. And oh my gosh, oh this was here, and oh my god, I can't believe that I completely missed that on mm-hmm. this right, this reading. Right. But now I caught it on that reading. Yeah, so that's that's a it's wonderful to know that the text is is rich like that. Yeah, definitely, Milfoy. And since you instanced me anyway, I would like to say that this is where. Nienna's true purpose, which is the purpose of grief, is clearly spelled out because mm. the text says, Then Manawe bade Yavanna and Nienna to put forth all their powers of growth and healing. Yeah. That is the purpose of grieving. Interesting. To heal and to grow. And we don't see it that way. Mm. Right. Because it hurts and we don't like it. Unless we can let ourselves get into it. And then you understand that grieving is the only way to live with this right. blessing and curse of free will. Mm, right. Because stuff happens and we have to be able to cope with that somehow. And yeah. that is Nienda's gift. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. Okay. Uh, John, I don't know if you want to take us out on a break or not. Cause I'm kind of, I, I was wow. about to say, I think that that is a good note to, uh, <laughs> to take a quick breather on. Let's all get a drink of water and come back after that one. <laughs> And we're back. And now that you've had a chance to cry it out a little bit, uh, we are ready to talk about the bad guys who are getting involved now. Uh, Morgoth gets angry and attacks the moon, which is just a wild thing to say. But he attacks the moon, uh, doesn't even go near the sun because he's scared of it. Uh, Morgoth gets weaker and more bound to the earth, the more his malice spreads to his servants, which is... A fascinating thing that I didn't even pick up on the first time I read the Silmarillion or the second time mm-hmm. or like, I, I don't remember ever reading this. So um, the, here we go. He gets weaker the more he spreads, which makes a lot of sense as we get further into this, how different foes are able to sort of challenge him more. Right. And this is where we get the concept of Mordecai's ring that Arda eventually becomes Mordecai's ring, i.e. it is infused mm-hmm with Morgoth's um, evil, in addition to being, you know, a good and beautiful creation. Um, yeah. Not unlike the ring itself. Yeah, this reminds me of um, one of the nine themes of Tolkien that I uh, 
created and developed for my students to use as sort of touchstones as we're reading through Legendarium, that evil contains the seeds of its own destruction. Right. Mm-hmm. And unwillingly aids, quote unquote, the good. Yeah. It's a variation on Spivimi, basically. Um, but his, you know, his temper tantrums and his infusing more and more servants with little bits of his own energy, he's he's just dissipating himself so much. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I've talked about, usually in the context of The Wheel of Time, how... I actually think that other series have done the whole evil sows the seeds of its own destruction better because other series mm-hmm. consider that good also does the same thing often. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if it's evil that necessarily does this or if it's human nature that just causes you to struggle with trusting each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, often evil will have an advantage because they have fewer rules, right? <laughs> and you you have to hold yourself to a standard that your opponent will never try to. Which is kind of why Manoe does what he does, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And doesn't do. Yeah. Yeah. Morgoth's attack on the moon scares the Valar into hiding their land away. They raise the mountains of the Pylori, leaving one path for the Eldar to return through. And they set the enchanted isles between Ammon and Middle-earth. The isles would cause travelers to sleep until the change of the world. Which, again, all these words, this word salad, the change of the world. What's that? <laughs> well, in this case, it's what happens after Numenor. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was the craziest part of the the chapter just these sheer glass walled mountains rising up out of nowhere like it was pretty crazy yeah and and these enchanted isles which i think is a super fascinating concept too of mm-hmm. okay it's still on the same plane of existence but you're you're not going to get there it's just impossible you're going to fall asleep before you even get there um mm-hmm. and and i too like that the the valar are like all right the the Teleri, there's some on each side of the border. Let's let's not completely cut it off. Let's have a visa program. <laughs> <laughs> I did it did this reading this did have me call back to Rings of Power and to that uh-huh. scene where uh Galadriel's on the on the boat, you know, going back. And I thought and that scene yeah. <laughs> was beautiful. It was like beautifully filmed and beautifully mm-hmm. staged. And, and mm-hmm. so it, it, even though this isn't that necessarily, it that's what my mind went to thinking about, you know, trying to approach, um, you know, uh, you know, going back to this holy sacred place. And it's a thing to go there. You know, it's yeah. it's not a... Oh, hey, look, there's a shore. Let's land the boat. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. There's no, a you need, lot more going on. You need a special pass, right? You need yeah. an explicit permission to go there. 100%. Well, that's what the Rings of Power does with it. In yeah. point of fact. Yeah. They could go. Oh, the no, I, I don't mean from the elves. I mean, you need sort oh, okay. of the blessing of the Valar to make it okay. through the Enchanted Isles and all that. Right. Yes. Yeah. If you want to call it a ticket, then it's a ticket from the Valar, not sure. from... Not a metaphorical ticket. Yeah. yeah. Right. right. Yeah. What's interesting to me is in the earliest version of this in the book of Lost Tales, they were divided. The Vala were divided as to whether or not this whole enchanted island thing was a good idea. And Ulmo, who is, of course, the god of waters, 
doesn't even participate. He says, nope, not going to do it. Neither do Manoe or Varda. Hmm. And Ulmo actually chastises the Valar who want to do it by saying, you know, are you feeling so vengeful that you're going to, you know, just completely cut us off forever Mm -hmm. from the children of Luvatar who we came here to serve in the first place? So that piece of it was very long in the evolution of the, the seven different versions and manuscripts that he wrote, you know, throughout that period of, well, not quite 60 years, but yeah. It was also really weird when Manway said, we're going to build a a set of islands and we're going to get Feyenoord to pay for it. Uh, (laughs) That was very strange moment. It felt very tonally off. We're going to get the Noldor to pay for it. Well, the Noldor pay, but not yeah. in that particular type of coin. And, right. you know, not for the Enchanted Isles. Right, right. But it does make you wonder, I mean, who do they think are going to be trapped in this? And, of course, we find out later that, you know, yeah. yes, it is some yeah. of the Noldor who do try to come back. But Spoilers. The doom has been pronounced. Yep. Well, yep. it's all it's all in, in the prophecy of Mandos. You know, yes. The Valar will shut off this land from you. So that we already have read. And we do get a tease. Of, we do. There's one person who's going to cross the Enchanted Isles. The Mightiest Mariner of Song. What a, what a title. I'd like to be called the Mightiest <laughs> Mariner of Song. Well, you know, it has its cost. Yes. Uh, I, I would not choose his fate. If I were him, it's uh, quite an exhausting job. But we'll we'll get to that much later, probably much at the later. end of this year. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I found it interesting that they said that all the elven race needed to breathe the air from the land of their birth at times. And it was nice that they decided not to cut the Teleri off. Yeah. One another, the yeah. ones on the shore and the ones that were living in, in Tuna. Yeah. Um, that was really so, interesting about the air is is this connection that they need to their homeland, right? They are indeed mm. tied to, to Middle Earth. Right. And literally in the sense that they do not die until Middle Earth itself ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even the immortal elves cannot live forever in the air of Elinor. Mm. And it's not that you can go to Valinor and receive everlasting life. That's not why it's called the undying lands. It's the undying lands because right. those who properly live there do not die. Yeah. People get the chicken and egg reversed on that one. They do. They do. And the elves are not genuinely immortal. They are serial longevil, if you want mm-hmm. to call it right. that. Right. Yeah. Um, but they do have an ending. Right. And even so, if you go into the nature of Middle Earth, I had some crazy stuff written about the elves. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Were, were people angry about that when that came out? Um, uh, just <laughs> some, some were fascinated, some were confused, some were bemused, some said, I'm not a mathematician. Let me skip to the more interesting parts about dancing bears on Numenor. They were like, so yeah. at this year, they're half spirit, and at this year, they're not. And yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a little confusing. Yeah. It was a little confusing. But um, we don't have to worry about that because it's on the Silmarillion, so we can ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the fact that the Mightiest Mariner of Song was able to get through the Enchanted Isles and the Shadows and the Bewilderment 
Dark Rocks and Mist, Warrior Hosts and Sentinels and Towers and Mega Mountains, shows the strength of the fate or doom that was laid upon him. Because you're listening to this litany of protections. And in the end, they didn't work for this one person who was intended to get through them all. Right. Hmm. So, I mean, I don't think anybody else ever got past the Enchanted Isles, to the best of my knowledge. Except, no, well, so except either. one, but that's that's way in the future, so we don't need to talk about that now. Right. Well, that's the chapter, everyone. Good okay. work. Are there any other thoughts before we move on to listener feedback? No, I, um, like I said at the top, I th- I think this was a, a fun chapter, and it 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 was a I felt it's a good way to start off the year, rather than a, a begats and begots style <laughs> chapter and going oh like what's the for me personally it was like oh the rediscovering the 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 joy of what's in this text uh, a good way to kick off yep. And I'm still wondering why the sound of waterfalls came along with the first sunrise. So listeners, if any of you are of a meteorological mind, please write in and tell us what you think. That sounds good. That sounds good. I have no answers for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will warn you, the next chapter does get a little Bugatti at the beginning, but there's good stories okay. in it too. All right. It's of men. That's what we're going to read next month. Uh, I have laid out the schedule. We're gonna stick to one a month. We're gonna we're gonna pre-record some things this year so that we we keep it going, and we're gonna close out the year. We're gonna just do a chapter at a time, and we're gonna spend two episodes on Baron and Luthien. So we will end the year uh-huh. on of tour of tour and tour and bar with Marilyn Arpukila, who's already said that she wants to be a guest on it. And I'll put that full list in the show notes so I don't have to read it all out here. But we're gonna do <laughs> one chapter a month except Baron and Luthien. All right. Listener feedback. If you'd like to chat with us about all this mumbo jumbo that we're talking about, you can send an email to LOTR at the lorehounds.com. You can go to the contact form on our website, the lorehounds.com, or you can head in the discord server and just, you know, ping us, say, Hey, question for you. We'll, we'll put it in the feedback section. So we've just got one. It's from the discord server. Longtime listener. E hoop writes in. And says, getting caught up on the Silmarillion story pods, there's a couple geographic markers on the CJRT map from LOTR that link it to the CJRT map from the Silmarillion. Does anyone know what that means, CJRT? Christopher John Rule Tolkien. Okay, good job. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Uh, for some good perspective, someone overlaid the maps a while ago. It's very useful. I think someone has commented that there's a scale issue due to the Earth being flat of the, the time of Valerian before the seas were bent or something. I can't speak to that, but it's kind of plausible due to how large Valerian appears. Yeah, so we'll get to that later. The the folding of Earths and whatever else happens meteorologically and, and geologically to this planet. Um but I, I, I'm enjoying looking at this map and this overlay. That's very cool. I don't know if you two have seen it. It's in the outline. It's beautiful. And I've seen it somewhere else. I think maybe Ehoop might have put it in the Discord at some point, or somebody did. Okay. Because I have seen it before in exactly that rendering. So. Um, I mean, I yeah. know Balerion was a huge chunk. That was not like a little thing that Balerion fell off. It's huge. Yeah. 
It is. It definitely is. <laughs> Looking at the scale of this thing is like, oh my, my yeah. goodness. How many authors just wipe out a, you know, a, a good third of their continent? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also Rune is cut off and we don't know how far Rune goes because, right. mm-hmm. you know, we just, it's mm-hmm. just unexplored in Lord of the Rings. So I think that's reasonable. I think it's a little big, but I don't think it's crazy big compared to Middle Earth here. So anyone else have thoughts on eHoop? All right. Well, thanks, eHoop, for writing in, and I hope you will next month. Hope everyone starts writing in more because we're getting into, again, I always say we're getting into the meat of it, but we're in the meat of it. We're (laughs) we're in the center of the sandwich right now. So uh, join in on the conversation. David, you want to give us some quick show notes? Sure. Uh, Not sure when we're going to be dropping this podcast relative to when we have recorded it, but we're going to be starting off uh, Lorehound's coverage of True Detectives Night Country, uh, which is going to be a season four for the show. It's an anthology show, and I think you can be able to watch this episode or the season as a standalone. And that's not what I'm have, doing. So yeah, that's what if, you're doing. If John I'm is confused, fresh. then you'll have somebody there with you at least. <laughs> but it sounds like uh, the the initial reviews have been great. It's a six episode, a six episode run. Starring uh, Jodie Foster as a police detective in Alaska, and it seems to have some tinges of um, maybe a little bit of uh, cosmic horror involved in some way. And uh, for fans of the show, uh, there's definitely, I think, going to be some connectivity to season one of the series, but the, they stand alone. They're independent. So you don't have to have watched those, but we'll be doing those episode to, to episode coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I should add, we have screeners for those. So we're going to be doing the coverage pretty much right away after the episode. So that'll be exactly. a lot of fun. And then uh, in terms of Anthony and Steve, they're taking a little break on properly Howard. Uh, Anthony's a, a bit busy these days with some of his professional responsibilities. But the moment we get a date for Severance Season 2, the four of us are going to be covering it week to week. And Anthony and Steve have already done a Season 1 rewatch, and all of those podcasts are already out. And if you just go to the show notes, you can find a link to that feed. We set up a whole separate channel just for that. So go subscribe to that and then uh, check it out once season two starts to come back. We also have got, um, you've got uh, Shireside Chats. I can never, Shireside Chats, uh, that (laughs) is out. You did it twice in a row. Well done. I did. And we've got plans for Earthsea. We're going to be moving on. For those who've been reading along with us on that, we've finished Dehanu, and we're going to uh, start off the next episode in February. We're going to read a short story called Dragonfly, which gets a little weird with the publishing order, but it's almost a short story bridge. And then we're going to go into The Other Wind, which is really the continuation of the the story. And then we're going to finish it all off with Tales of Earthsea, which are a collection of short stories. So look for a February release for Earthsea. Well, David, I think that's about it. Let's just do our quick thank yous to our Patreon lore masters, our top tier subscribers who are uh, keeping us going every month. Samartian, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, 
Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, D- Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwang Yu, Laura G, Dead Eye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub Zero, Aaron K, Don V, aka Mountain Dragon. Also, just let us know if you want to be called something different because you're a new lore master and, and thank you for joining. Yay. Uh, and last but not at least, who is always requested being last, Adrian. Uh, we, we, we love we love to have that running joke. And thank you to all our patrons. Of course, we, we're doing live watches this month. We're doing. Oh, that's uh, right. We're doing Rogue One. We're doing Rogue One. Yep, yep, yep. And there's going to be a, a poll for the Second Breakfast Old Man movie. We've got Second Breakfast co- coming, of course, and other Shire side chats at the beginning of February. So plenty of stuff coming. I think uh, Alicia's got stuff in the hopper too, but we haven't. Um, we're waiting for her to to get settled yeah, back yeah. in from her holiday break. So by the yeah, time this comes that. out, maybe that will all be in motion. So cool. All right, everyone. See you all soon on the next Silmarillion story. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by the Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com/contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.